Chapter 26, Part 2 of Beyond These Voices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Beyond These Voices by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 26, Part 2. Vera sat in a corner of the reserved compartment and read Browning's Christmas Eve all through the swift journey from the red cliffs of North Devon and the wide blue sky to the grey dullness of a London twilight. It was a poem which she read again and again, which she knew by heart. It lifted her out of herself. She felt as if she were out in the winter darkness on the wind-swept common, as if her hands were clutching the edge of the divine raiment. Was not that sublime vision something more than a dream in a stuffy Methodist chapel? Were there not moments in life when earth touched heaven, when divine compassion was something more real than the words in a book, when Christ the Redeemer came within reach of the sinner, and when faith became certainty? Nothing less than this. Nothing but the assurance of a living God could lift the despairing soul out of the abyss. The house to which she was returning was a house of fear, and in spite of all she had said to her aunt, she knew that there was no necessity for her return. The rich man's widow had nothing to do that a telegram to her housekeeper would not have done for her. But the house drew her somehow. She had a morbid longing to be there, alone in the silence and emptiness of unused rooms, without Claude, whose presence jarred in rooms where another figure was still master. She found all things in perfect order, no speck of dust in the rooms on the ground floor, her morning room brilliant with Japanese chrysanthemums. She went to the library after her solitary dinner. The evening was cold and fires were burning in all the rooms. She drew a low chair to the hearth and sat brooding over the smouldering cedar logs, perhaps one of the loneliest women in London. And yet not quite alone, since nothing that had happened in her futile life of the last years had shaken her belief in Mr. Simeon's creed, and she felt that the dead were near her. Julia, who had loved her, Julia, the happy soul who had known neither sin nor sorrow, the yearning of unsatisfied love, or the seething fires of guilty passion. Julia's gentle spirit had been with her of late, the spirit of her only girlfriend, and she had lived over again the tranquil hours at San Marco, the talk of books that had opened a new world to her, Julia having read so much, and she so little. Father and daughter had opened the gates of that new world for her. It was from them that the poet's daughter had learnt to understand and love all that is highest in the poetry of the world. If Julia had lived, she thought tonight as she crouched over the lonely hearth, sitting in that low chair in which she used to sit, as it were, at her husband's feet, sometimes in the dreamy twilight letting her drooping head rest upon his knee, while his hand hovered caressingly over the blonde hair. 
Had Julia lived, would everything have been different? Would Mario have loved and married her, and would they three have lived in a trinity of love? It seemed to her that Julia would have been a hallowing influence. They two would have been like sisters, loving and understanding the man who loved them both. No cloud of jealousy could have come between them. All would have been sympathy and understanding. That wall of separation which had risen up between her and her husband would never have been. Neither pride on her part nor distrust upon his part would have killed love. Julia would have sympathised with both and her love would have kept them united. She mused long upon the life that might have been, the life without a cloud. She thought with longing of the girl who had died sinless in the morning of an unsullied life. Was not such a life, wrapped round with love and free from the shadow of sin, such a death before satiety had come to change the gold to dross, the happiest fate that God could give to his chosen? And to think that I was sorry for her, that I pitied her for being taken from such a beautiful world, from such a devoted father. How could I know that death was the only security from sin? She sat long in that melancholy reverie, only rousing herself and taking up a book from the table at her side when she heard the door opening and a servant came in to put fresh logs on the fire. She told the man that her maid, Louison, was not to sit up for her. Nobody was to sit up. She would not be going upstairs for some time. She wanted nothing, and she would switch off the lights. In a house lighted by electricity, the lights were of very little consequence. The footman took elaborate pains with the fire, piling up the logs, and arranging the large brass guard that fenced the hearth, and then retired with ghostly steps to remote regions, where his fellows were lingering over the supper-table, some of them talking of the journey to Rome, and those who were to remain in charge of the house complaining of the dullness of a long winter, and the low figure of board wages, which had remained more or less stationary, while everything else was going up by leaps and bounds. "'I'd leap and bound you if I had my way,' said Mr. Sedgwick. A pack of lazy trash. If I were Mr. Rutherford, I should put a policeman and a bulldog into the house and lock it up till next May. You that are left have a deal too soft a time, while we that go have to work like galley slaves. Three parties a week and a pack of Italian savages to keep up to the mark. Fellows who are more used to daggers and stilettos than to soap and water. Better for a brigand's cave than a high-class pantry, and who think nothing of quarrelling and threatening to murder each other in the middle of a dinner party. There's no sense in a mixed staff. My pantry was a regular pandemonium last Christmas, and I wished myself back in sooty old London. Mrs. Manby was to stay in Portland Place, mistress of the silent house, with one footman, two housemaids to sweep and dust, and a kitchen wench to cook for her. She had saved money, and was independent, and even haughty. When I go to Italy it will be to the Riviera for my health, and I shall go as a lady, she told Sedgwick, who, 
notwithstanding his abhorrence of Roman footmen, liked his winter in Rome, as a period that afforded better pickings than even a London season, Italian tradesmen being more amenable than London purveyors, who had been harassed and bound of late by grandmotherly legislation. Supper had been finished in hall and housekeeper's parlour long before Vera left the library. It was after midnight when a sudden shivering, a vague horror of the silence came upon her and she rose from her low chair in front of the dying fire and began to wander from room to room. The last of the logs had dropped into grey ashes in the library, and all other fires had gone out. The formal room, with large official-looking chairs and severe office desk, where Mario Provana had received formal visitors, was the abode of gloom in this dead hour of the night. And yet it was not empty. The sound of the dead man's voice was in the room, the voice of command, so strong, so stern in those grave discussions which Vera had often overheard through the half-open door of the library in the days when she had shared her husband's life, before fashion and disbrows had parted them. His image was in the room, the massive figure the commanding height, the broad shoulders, a little bent, as if with the weight of the noble head they had to carry. He was standing in front of his desk, facing those other men with the grave look she knew so well, courteous, serious, resolute, and then slowly, with a movement of weariness at the conclusion of an interview, he sank into the spacious armchair. She saw him tonight as she had seen him often, watching through the open door, while she was waiting for the business people to go, and for him to join her for their afternoon drive. What ages ago, those tranquil days in which they had driven together in the summer afternoons, not the dull circuit of the park, but to Hampton Court, or Wimbledon, or Richmond, or Esher, escaping from the suburban flower gardens to green fields and rural commons, glimpses of woodland even, in the country about Claremont. Their airings were no swift rushes in thirty-horsepower car, but a leisurely progress behind a pair of priceless horses, with time for seeing wild roses and honeysuckle in the hedges, the dogs and children on rustic paths, and the peace of cottage gardens. She remembered how those tranquil afternoons had become impossible, by reason of her perpetual engagements, and how quietly Mario Provana had submitted to the change in her way of life, the succession of futile pleasures, the hurry and excitement. "'I want you to be happy,' he told her, when she made a feeble apology for not having an afternoon at his service. "'You are young, and you must enjoy your youth.' Things that seem trivial and joyless to me are new and sweet to you. Be happy, love. I have plenty of use for my time. That was in the beginning of their drifting apart. Looking back tonight, she could but wonder, as she remembered how gradually, how imperceptibly that drifting apart had gone on, until she awoke one day to find that she and her husband were estranged. He was kind had only an indulgent smile for the folly of her life, 
but the happy union of their first wedded years was over and done with. In Lady Susan's brief phrase, they had become like other people, and now she and Claude Rutherford had drifted apart, and were like other people. The reunion of a few weeks at Disbrow was but a flash of summer across the gathering gloom of their lives. He can be happy, she thought, brooding in the night silence. He cares for so many things. I care for nothing but the things that are gone. And then, while the clock of all souls struck that solemn single stroke, which has even a more awful note than the twelve strokes of midnight, she thought of her dead, all her dead. Her poets, Tennyson, Browning, Swinburne, men who had lived while she was living, and one by one had vanished. Of the great tragic actor whose genius had thrilled her childish heart, of all that company of the great who had died long before she was born, and it seemed to her in her dejection as if the earth were an empty desert in which nothing great or beautiful was left. They had all gone through the dark gates of death, across the wild that no man knows. Her poet father, her lovely young mother, phantoms of beauty, distant and dim, evanescent shadows in the memory of a child. Yet, if Francis Simeon's creed were true, they were not gone forever. They had not gone across the wild to dark distances beyond the reach of human thought. They were only emancipated. The worm had cast its earthly husk, and the spirit had spread its wings. Released from the laws of space and time, the all-understanding mind of the dead could be in sympathy with the elect among the living. With us, the elect, who have renounced the joys of sense and lived only to cultivate the pleasures of the mind. For us, the poets we worship still live. The minds that have been the light and leading of our minds are our companions and friends. We need no salaried mediums abracadabra to summon them, no weary waiting round a table in a darkened room, disturbed by suspicions of trickery. They come to us uncalled, as we sit alone in the gloaming, or wander alone over the desolate down, or by the long seashore. The poem we read is suddenly illuminated with the soul of the poet. The printed page becomes a message from the immortal mind. Tonight, in that silent hour, it was only of the dead, Vera thought, as she wandered from room to room in the house of fear, shrinking from the prospect of the long, sleepless hours, weary yet restless. Restlessness made her wander into regions that were almost strange. She drew aside a heavy curtain and pushed open a crimson cloth door that led from the hall of ceremony to those inferior regions common to servants and tradesmen the long stone passage, with doors right and left, the passage that ended at the door into the stable-yard, the door by which Mario Provana had entered on the night of his death. Rarely had her foot trodden the stone pavement, yet every detail of the place, the form of the doors, the white ceiling, 
the unlovely drab walls had been burned into her brain. A single electric lamp gave the kind of light that is more awful than darkness. She heard clocks ticking, one that sounded solemn and slow, as if it were some awful mechanism that was measuring the fate of men. One with a thin and hurried beat, like the pulse of fever. She heard the heavy breathing of more than one sleeper, and presently, in front of the yard door, she came upon the watchdog, the Irish terrier, Buru. He was lying asleep on a rug in front of the door, and her light step upon the stone had not roused him. It was only when she was close to his rug that he started up and gave a low, muffled bark, and sniffed at the skirt of her dress, and being assured that she was to be trusted, sprang up with his forefeet upon her hip and licked her hands. She stooped over him and stroked his rough head, and let him nestle close against her, and then she knelt down beside him, and put her arms round him, and fondled him as he had never been fondled before by so beautiful and delicate a creature. From those long thoughts of a world peopled by the dead, the spontaneous love of this warm living creature touched her curiously. There was comfort in contact with anything so full of life, and she laid her cold cheek against the dog's black nose, called him by his name, and made him her friend forever. Poor old dog, all alone in this cold place. Come upstairs with me. Come, Buru. The house dog needed no second invitation. He kept close to her trailing silken skirt as she moved slowly through the hall, switching off lights as she went, and so by the stately staircase to the second floor. The fire in her morning room had been made up at a late hour by Louison, who was now accustomed to her mistress's nocturnal habits, and the logs were bright on the hearth, and brightly reflected on the hedge-sparrow egg blue of the tiled fireplace. The terrier looked round the room with approval. Till this night he had seen nothing finer than Mrs. Manby's parlour, where, when occasionally suffered to lie in front of the fire, he had always to be on his best behaviour. But in Vera's room he made himself at once at home, jumped on and off the prettiest chairs, rioted among the silken pillows on the sofa, looking at her with questioning eyes all the time, to see what liberties he might take, and finally stretched his yellow-red body at full length in the glow and warmth of the hearth wagging a lazy tail with ineffable bliss. Vera seated herself in a low chair near him, and stooped now and then to pat the broad, flat head. He was a big dog of his kind, and though intended only for the humblest service, to rank with kitchen and scullery maids and under-footmen, he was naturally, in that opulent household, a well-bred animal of an unimpeachable pedigree. His parents and grandparents had been prize-winners, and his blood might have entitled him to a higher place than the run of the servants' halls and stables, and a mat in a stone passage. But whatever his inherited merits or personal charms, Vera's sudden liking for him had nothing to do with his race or character. It was the chill desolation of the silent hour, the freezing horror of the empty house, 
that had made her heart soften and her tears fall at the contact of this warm, living creature in the world of the dead. It was almost as if she had lost her way in one of the Roman catacombs and had met this friendly animal among the dead of a thousand years and in the horror of impenetrable darkness. "'You are my dog now, Baroo,' she told the terrier, and the small, bright, dark eyes looked up at her with a light that expressed perfect understanding, while the pointed ears quivered with delight. He followed her to the threshold of her bedroom, where she showed him a white fleecy rug on which he was to sleep outside her door. He threw himself upon his back, with his four legs in the air, protesting himself her slave, and from that hour he worshipped her, and followed her about her house in abject devotion. He went with her to Italy. Of course there would be difficulties about his return to England, but canine quarantine might be ameliorated for a rich man's dog. He became her companion and friend, and it was strange how much he meant in her life. Strange, very strange, for in all the years of folly and self-indulgence she had never given herself a canine favourite. She had seen almost every one of her friends more or less absurdly devoted to some small creature. Griffin, Manchester Terrier, Pekingese, Japanese, King Charles, Pomeranian, dogs whose merits seemed in an inverse ratio to their size, or the slaves to some more dignified animal, poodle or chow. She had seen this canine slavery, and had wondered with a touch of scorn. And now, in the stately spaciousness of the Roman villa, she found herself listening for the patter of the Irish terrier's feet upon the marble floors, and rejoicing when he came bounding across the room to lay his head upon her knee, and express unutterable affection with the exuberance of a rough, hairy tail. The clue to the mystery came to her suddenly as she sat musing in the firelight, with Baru stretched at her feet. She had wanted this dog. She had wanted some warm-hearted creature to love her, and to be loved by her. It had been the vacant house of her life that called for an inhabitant. She had awakened from her fever dream of happiness to find herself alone, utterly alone, in a world of which she was weary. Claude Rutherford was of no more account to her. The thing that had happened was something worse than drifting apart. Gradually and imperceptibly the distance between them had widened, until she had begun to ask herself if she had ever loved him. Baru went with his mistress on the long journey to San Marco, and behaved with an admirable discretion at the big hotel at Marseilles, where, though he would have liked to try conclusions with a stalwart Dogu de Bordeaux that he met in one of the long corridors, he contented himself with a passing growl as he crept after Vera to his post outside her room. All things were strange to him in these first continental experiences, but he bore all things with sublime restraint, concentrating all his brain power and all his emotional force on the one supreme duty of guarding the lovely lady who had adopted him. At the Hôtel des Anglais, 
Mrs. Rutherford was received with rapture, and the spacious suite on the first floor was, as it were, laid at her feet. She would, of course, occupy those rooms, and no other, the rooms where Signor Provana and his sweet young daughter had lived. Signor Canincio ignored the fact that the sweet young daughter had also died there. No, Mrs. Rutherford would have the rooms in which she had lived with her grandmother. I want our old rooms, please, she said. The rooms in which you were so happy, where you spent two winters with the illustrious Lady Felicia. Signor Canincio at once perceived how natural it was for Madame to prefer those rooms. Everything should be made ready immediately. His season had not yet begun, but his hotel would be full to overflowing in December, when he expected many of Madame's old friends to settle down for the winter. Vera smiled as she remembered those old friends, with whom she had never been friendly. The sour spinsters and widows who had always resented Lady Felicia's determination to deny herself the advantage of their society. It was the dead season of the year. The late lingering roses on the walls had a sodden look, the pepper trees drooped disconsolately, and a curtain of grey mist hung over the parade, where Vera had walked, alone and dejected, before the coming of Julia and her father, the hills where they had driven looked farther away in the shadowy atmosphere. There was no gleaming whiteness on the distant mountains. All was grey and melancholy, and in unison with her thoughts of the dead. She had come there to look upon her husband's grave. She had been prostrate and helpless at the time of his burial, and had only just been capable of arousing herself from a state of apathy to insist that he should be carried back to the country of his birth, and should lie beside his daughter in the shadow of the cypresses between the sea and the olive woods. Even in that agonising time, the picture of that familiar spot had been in her mind as she gave her instructions, and she had seen the marble tomb in its green enclosure, and the tall trees standing deeply black against the pale gold of the sky, as on that evening when Mario Provana had found her sitting by his daughter's tomb. He must lie there, she told his partner, nowhere else, no, not even in Rome, where his family had their stately sepulchre. It was under the marble tomb he had made for his idolised child that he must rest. And now, in the dull grey November, she stood once more beside the marble, and read the lines that had been graven under Julia's brief epitaph. Also in memory of Mario Provana, her father, who died in London on July the 13th, 19 blank, in the 57th year of his age, and below this one word, reunited. She stayed long in the green enclosure, a dog coming back to her after much exploration of the wood above, where he had startled and scattered any animal life that he could find there, and the seashore below, where he stirred the tideless waves by the vehemence of his plunges. And then she went for a long ramble in the familiar paths where she had walked with Provana in those sunny afternoons, before the ride to the chocolate mills, 
She stayed nearly a week at San Marco, repeating the same process every day. First, a lingering visit to the grave, and then a long, lonely walk in the paths she had trodden with a man whom she had thought of only as her friend's father, until, by an imperceptible progress, he had made himself the one close friend of her life. She took pains to find the very paths they had trodden together, the humble shrines or chapels they had looked at, the rocks where they had sat down to rest. When she had first spoken of revisiting San Marco, Claude had done his uttermost to dissuade her. "'Don't be morbid,' he had said more than once. "'Your mind has a fatal leaning that way. You ought to fight against it.' Yes, she knew that she was morbid, that she had taken to brooding upon melancholy memories, that she was cultivating sadness. Alone in the olive wood, watching the evening light change and fade, and the shadows steal slowly from the valley and the sea, while memory recalled words that had been spoken in that narrow pathway, among those grey old trees, in the light and shade of evenings that seemed ages ago, she had a feeling that was almost happiness. It was a memory of happiness so vivid that it seemed the thing itself. She had been very happy in those tranquil evenings. She knew now that she had begun to love Mario Provana many days before his impassioned avowal had taken her by storm. His eloquence, his power of thought and feeling, had made life and the world new. She saw Othello's visage in his mind. His rugged features and his eight-and-forty years were forgotten in the charm of his conversation and the rare music of his voice. The world of the scholar, of the thinker, and the poet had been an unknown world to the girl of eighteen, whose poor little bit of flimsy education had been limited to the morning hours of a Miss Greenow at a guinea a week. He opened the gate of that divine world and led her in, and they walked there together. He charmed by her freshness and naivety, she dazzled by his wealth of knowledge and his power of imagination. Not even her poet father could have had a wider knowledge of books, or a greater power of thought, she told herself, which was a concession to friendship, as she had hitherto put her father in the front rank of those who know. She looked back at those innocent hours, when he who was so soon to be her husband was only thought of as her first friend. She looked back to hours that seemed to her to have been the happiest in all her life. Yes, the happiest. For happiness is sunshine and calm weather, not fever and storm. There were other hours more romantic and more thrilling, but agonizing to remember, sensual, devilish. Those hours in the woods had been serene and pure, and she had walked there with the heart of a child. How kind he had been, how kind! It was the kindness in the low grey voice that had made its music, only the kindness of a friend of mature years, interested in her youth and ignorance. Only a grave and thoughtful friend, liking her because she had been loved by his dead daughter. That is what she had thought of him for the greater part of those quiet hours. Yet now and then she had been startled by a sudden suggestion. 
She did not know, but she felt that he was her lover. It was in vain that Signor Canincio pressed her to occupy his piano nobile as the only part of his hostel worthy of her. She insisted on the old rooms, the salon that had been growing shabbier and shabbier in the years of her absence, and which had never been redecorated. There were the same faded cupids flying about the ceiling, where many a crack in the plaster testified to an occasional earthquake. And there was the same shabby paper on the walls. Nothing had been altered, nothing had been removed. Vera went out upon the balcony and looked down at the little town and the distant ridge where the walls of a monastery rose white against the grey November sky. Everything was the same. She had wanted to come back. It was a morbid fancy, perhaps, like many of her fancies. She knew that she was morbid. She wanted to steep herself in the memories of the time before she was Mario Provana's wife the time when she knew that he loved her and was proud of his love. She walked up and down the room, touching things gently as she passed them, as if those poor old pieces of furniture, with their white paint and worn gilding, were a part of her history. This was the table where she had sat making tea, a slow process, while Mario stood beside her, watching her, as she watched the blue flame under Granny's old silver kettle, the George the Second silver that gave a grace to the cheap salon. Lady Felicia had kept her old silver, light and thin with much use, as resolutely as she had kept her diamonds. If ever I were forced to part with those poor things of mine, I should feel myself no better than the charwoman who comes here to scrub floors, she told Lady Oakhampton and that kind lady, who was taking tea with poor Lady Felicia in her London lodgings, had approved a sentiment so worthy of a disbrow. Vera paced the room slowly in the thickening light, sometimes standing by the open window, listening to footsteps on the parade, and the talk of the women from the olive woods, tramping bravely homeward with heavy baskets on their heads, baskets of little black olives for the oil mills, that dotted the steep sides of the gorge through which the tempestuous little river went brawling down to the sluggish sea. And then she went back into the shadows and slowly, slowly paced all the length of the room, thinking of those evenings when she had made tea for the Roman financier. The shadows gathered momentarily and the shape of all things became vague and dim. There was Granny's sofa, and Granny was sitting there among her silken pillows. She could see the pale, thin face and the frail figure wrapped in a china crepe shawl. The white shawl had always had a ghostly look in a dimly lighted room. She went over to the sofa and felt the empty corner where Granny used to sit. No, she was not there. The sofa was a bare, hard object with nothing phantasmal about it. There were no silken cushions. Those amenities had been Lady Felicia's private property, travelling to and fro by petite vitesse. There was no one on the sofa, and that dark form, 
the tall figure near the tea-table, was nothing but shadow. It vanished as she came near, and there was only empty space, with the white table shining in the faint light from the open window. Nothing but shadow, she thought, like my life. There is nothing left of that but shadow. How happy I must have been when I lived in this room. How happy! But I did not know it. How sweetly I used to sleep, and what dear dreams I dreamt. I was only seventeen in our first winter, and I was a good girl. Looking back, I cannot remember that I had ever done wrong. I was always obedient to Granny, and I tried hard to please her, and to care for her when she was ill. I always spoke the truth. The truth? Why should I have been afraid of truth in those days? There was no merit in fearless truth. But the difference, the difference. It seemed so strange now that she had not been happier. To be young and without sin, to believe in God and to love Christ, was that not enough for happiness? The room was almost dark before she rang for lamps. In that southern paradise, the shutting of windows must precede the entrance of lighted lamps, and one is apt to prolong the time entre chien or loup. The darkness fostered those morbid feelings that she had indulged of late. She thought of Francis Simeon and his belief in the communion of the living and the dead. Her husband might be near her as she crept about in the darkness. She might know that he was there, but she was not to hope for any visible sign of his presence. To see was reserved for the elect, and for them only when the earthly tabernacle was near its end, when the veil between life and death had worn thin. Then only, and for the choicest spirits only, would that thin veil be rent asunder, and the dead reveal themselves to the living, in a divine anticipation of immortality. Not for all, not for those who have loved earthly things and lived the sensual life, not for them the afterlife of reunion and felicity. Not for me, never for me. She fell on her knees by Granny's sofa and bowed her head upon her folded arms and prayed, a wild and fervent prayer, a distracted appeal for mercy to one who knew and could pity. Such a prayer as might have trembled on the Magdalene's pale lips while, with bent head and hidden countenance, she washed the Redeemer's feet with her tears. The spell that was woven of silence and shadow was broken suddenly by the opening of the door and the tumultuous entrance of the Irish terrier, followed by Louison, who saw only darkness and an empty room. May you don't, eh, madame? she exclaimed. Bourou had found his mistress by something keener than the sense of sight and had pushed his cold black nose against her cheek, despite of the bowed head, and leapt about her as she rose to her feet just in time to hide all signs of agitation, as Signor Canincio's odd man, in a loose red jacket, looking like a reformed bandit, brought in a pair of lamps and flooded the room with light. Louison rushed to shut the windows and exclude cette affreuse bête les moustiques, from whose attentions she herself had suffered. 
Mais, madame, pourquoi d'y prendre sonner Vous y voilà sans lumière, sans feu, et les fenêtres grandes ouvertes. Ascenderai donc, to the old man, apporte legno, molto legno, et faire un bon fuoco. Presto, subito, tout de suite. It may be that this noisy solicitude was meant to cover a certain want of attention to her mistress, Mademoiselle having lingered over the tea-table in the courier's room, where a dearth of couriers at this dead season was atoned for by the presence of Signor Canincio and his English wife, she dispensing the weakest possible tea with condescending kindness, and wife and husband both alert to hear anything that Louison would tell them about her mistress while the animated gestures and expressive eyes of the host testified to his admiration for la belle Francaise, an admiration that was made more agreeable to Louison from the consuming jealousy which he saw depicted in the countenance of the travelling footman, whose inferior status ought to have excluded him from that table. But Louison knew that Canincio's hotel had always been what Mr. Sedgwick called Une affaire d'un seul cheval. End of chapter 26, part 2.